This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Rocks Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com. If you have a powerful enough intention to get to responsibility, then your psyche will knock you up to obligation, and then you'll feel trapped. So the secret of getting out of obligation, just refuse to be trapped or refuse to stay trapped. I refuse to stay trapped. (laughs) Welcome to the B2B Growth Hacks podcast, the show that helps entrepreneurs like you unlock opportunities for growth in business. I'm your host, Sarah Smith, and this is B2B Growth Hacks, a podcast powered by Speakerbox Media. Welcome back to B2B Growth Hacks. We are in our Innovate or Die series, and I am so excited about the conversation I have today. Today in the studio in Austin, I have Christopher Avery with me. He is the CEO and founder of The Responsibility Company and has over 30 years of experience in the game. Christopher, thank you for coming today. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'd love for you to introduce The Responsibility Company yourself and tell us a little bit about the responsibility process. So The Responsibility Company, 30 years old, but it's only been called the responsibility company for two plus years. Um, We did a formal name change with the state, so we still have the same tax ID. But we started as a company called PartnerWorks, uh, and we were actually named by a German professor um, because we were focused on, and when I say we, I had a college professor uh, who was a partner and another woman who was a partner expert in NLP and adult training. And we were focused on teamwork and innovation. And you mentioned liking to have seasoned people. So this was 1991 when we started this company. And I was working in high tech and I was doing work uh, in the social side of stuff. So I came out of a consulting firm when I finished my PhD that was all PhD operations research engineers. And I was the social science guy that was studying innovation, creativity, culture, and things like that. We had a client, and I think I can share who it is, IBM. It's a big client, and we were doing lots of workshops for them. And a director in education who had just come out of doing a stint in software development. I asked her what kept her awake at night, what gave her nuts in the stomach. And she said, I wish we could teach software project leaders how to build teams. And I thought, oh, I can do that. (laughs) And we created a a powerful workshop, uh, which today is called Powerful Teams. And uh, we actually are able to teach people that there is a, a science, you can call it a social technology, of how people come together in teams. And I wrote a book on it called Teamwork is an Individual Skill after developing this for 10 years. And we got really good at teaching anyone how to build any team anytime. And people still don't know that today, unless they've been introduced to this idea. Teamwork is still fuzzy black magic to most people. The magic or the the magic sauce that I decided to hang the idea on was uh, shared responsibility. Hmm. So I noticed that when teams really come together, and almost everybody has had at least one great team experience, that when teams really come together and they hit those high performance dynamics and they have those things like real-time communication and immediate feedback and you know great care for each other and great care for the overall team project, whatever it is, that what I noticed is that there's a level of ownership there that wasn't there 
previously, hmm. right? And I started asking, so what is this stuff called ownership? What is this stuff called personal responsibility? And where does it come from? So my mom and dad and society taught me that some people have this stuff called responsibility and some people don't. And if you've got something important you want done, you better ask someone who shows responsibility right, to do it. But here I saw everyday people go from being sort of engaged at work or coming to work out of obligation, right, I need a paycheck, right, to lighting up, right, and really taking ownership of the project and taking ownership of their relationship with each other team member. And so I realized that there's this, this idea of ownership or responsibility is emergent and it's subjective, it's different for each of us. And it's transient. It comes and goes. Someday I feel like owning my life, and some days I don't feel like owning my life. <laughs> That's the <right>? truth. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went in search of the science of personal responsibility <clears throat> so that I could incorporate it in this teamwork workshop and training consulting. And I ran into a little research study that started in the early 80s. Um, and uh, my mentor here in Austin, Texas, a guy named Bill McCarley at coevolution.com. Uh, Bill McCarley got involved in 1984, and it was a phenomenological study, meaning you weren't trying to fill any gaps in the literature. You weren't starting with any theory. You were starting with a phenomena, right? And this phenomena was whether or not people are taking ownership for their lives and then seeing if you can start making sense out of it. What he and his mentor noticed was that the first place everybody starts when they can't have what they want is what we call lay blame. Uh, so I'm explaining the responsibility process. It turns out that there's a process, a pattern in our minds that we're born with, right? probably developed sometime early in the womb. Right? It's true for all of us. And what it says is that we're really good at not taking ownership of our life. Mm -hmm. And we're really good at feeling like victims. And we're really good at suffering and coping instead of growing. Mm -hmm. right? And so when things go wrong, our mind throws off anxiety. Right? And we actually have a very technical definition of something going wrong. It's when there's a collision in your mind between what you want and what you have. Right? So if I want to get a nice cup of coffee and go to my chair and read, right, and I stub my toe on the stairs going upstairs with the coffee in my hand and I spill it down the front of me, at that moment I do not have what I want. Right? So that's a problem. And I get upset. Right? And that triggers the responsibility process. Mm. And we go into a hyperactive search for cause and effect. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? And our first question is, who did this? <laughs> right? And I might even look at those stairs and say, who built those that way? Yeah. Right? Who did that little black thing there that I didn't see? You know? And so we call that the mental state of labeling. Hmm. And uh, so something important to understand here is that each part of this process is a mental state. And research has substantiated the idea that we have different mental states. And these different mental states can come and go. They're temporal, right? And they have their own cause-effect logic that goes along with them. 
And so in the mental state of blame, I'm at effect and the cause is somebody, mm-hmm. some entity. We can stay there in that mental state forever around a problem or we can get off of it. And uh, we can get off of it in a microsecond if we know how to. Mm. Right? When we learn that we're claiming that we're powerless when we're in that state. So people who want to grow right, and, and hack, they don't want to be powerless. No. Right. So the way to get out of blame is simply to decide to stop blaming. Catch yourself doing it and stop. If you do that, then you land in another mental state called justify. Justify has the same cause-effect logic. Instead of blaming an individual, you're blaming situations. You're blaming the environment. You're blaming, oh, I didn't have enough time. I didn't have enough time is actually a justify. The truth is I didn't prioritize it. Mm -hmm. That's the truth if we're willing to face ourselves and own our actions. Mm -hmm. It's the economy. It's COVID. Right. COVID has been the biggest justify for the last 18 months. Right. I just got to talk to a friend of mine in Germany today. I haven't talked to in a long time. She said, I hope you're doing okay in these challenging times. And I said, you know, that's a justify, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) This is somebody who's been a student of mine and and I have permission to poke her. I said, I'm doing great. I'm not going to let COVID get me down or the fact that my business went, you know, nearly bankrupt at the beginning of it or. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I'm more powerful than that. So justify is a very pernicious mental state. Right. We didn't have the budget. We followed the process. Lots of justify. If we decide to stop telling our own story, you know, stop our own drama about justify, then we land in a mental state called shame. And the mental state of shame is, I did this to me. It's just labeling myself, right? Oh, I'm the dummy. I could have paid attention to how I was walking up the stairs, right? What adult I am, right? How stupid. I should learn, right? So in in shame, we're beating ourselves up. And in each of these mental states, there are also premises. And the premise in shame is that there's something wrong with me, Mm -hmm. right? And, and so this is where things start to change in terms of the research because what society taught you and me and most societies in the world teach is they teach us that blaming and telling stories, making excuses is no good. Right? We learn that. <coughs> but they teach us that if we're beating ourselves up for making mistakes, we're taking responsibility. Right? Actually, what they're teaching us is that uh, they like us beating ourselves up, that, that that's good. Mm. And we've all learned that. And mm-hmm. especially smart, educated, caring people. We're really good at beating ourselves up. Yeah. Um, and if we stop beating ourselves up for having a problem and being human and making mistakes, which all humans do, then we land in a mental state called obligation. And the mental state of obligation is the mental state of have to, don't want to. Mm. Right? Have to, don't want to. And uh, we were also taught all our lives that if we're doing what we're supposed to do, even if we despise it, even if we hate it, that we're taking responsibility. And our research says that couldn't be farther from the truth. Right? Um, so every day I see smart, caring, 
educated, motivated people who are stuck in jobs and lives that they don't know how they got there and don't know how to get out mm-hmm. right? every day. And it's because they were enculturated, they were socialized to be good, responsible people, which really means conforming. Yeah. Right? So responsibility for most of the world means conforming to expectations, right? Being a, seeking approval. Yeah. Yeah, and safety. So <clears throat> if we decide to refuse to feel trapped right, in an obligation, then we can actually get into a more resourceful mental state where the ability to respond resides. So the mental state of of responsibility is always available to us. And the way we learn how to get there is by realizing that stuff goes wrong all day, every day. And society reinforces our adopting one of these lower coping states Right, which are all natural, so it's, I mean, is programmed into us at birth or before birth, so it's natural. There's nothing wrong with you if you're blaming or justifying your, your being human. Right? It's just that the people that I work for, they want to be more resourceful. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, so that mental state of responsibility is there. And in this mental state, we call it the mental state of freedom, choice, and power. So in my corporate work, I'm trying to help high-level senior leaders and leadership teams that want to build environments where people are feel more resourceful and where people can experience freedom, choice, and power more often. And, you know, most of traditional management techniques put people in shame and obligation all day long, with punishment and pointing out mistakes and talking down and, you know, negative performance evaluations and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So... Um, so that's the responsibility process. It says that there's a bunch of coping states, which we call below the line. The line is between obligation and responsibility. And in those coping states, it's very simple, and once you know about it, kind of stupid, cause-effect logic. Right? And, um, and above the line in the st- in the mental state of responsibility, it seems like we have available to us all of the complex adaptive reasoning processes of the mind, which means that we are much better able to generate and create solutions and figure out what we want and how we're going to solve this pesky problem. And that's it, the responsibility process. And my work is about my entire career has been about how to understand this better, how to teach it, how to help people adopt it. Um, and I work with both individuals and and corporations. And your whole question was about the responsibility company. So let me come back to that. So um, my whole first career was around teamwork and shared responsibility. So the teamwork is an individual skill book is where I got to first talk about my just getting to learn, starting to learn about the responsibility process and teach it. In 2006, I decided that it was the most important stuff that I know and have to share. Mm. And I turned my attention from being a teamwork guy to being a leadership guy, uh, because I believe leadership is responsibility, period, and nothing else. 
And then in 2018, I had the opportunity to buy uh, the URL, responsibility.com. And uh, so we renamed the company in the beginning of 2019, if I recall, to the responsibility company. The responsibility process talks us through uh, innovation in such a scientific way. You mentioned a, a mentor and a, and a book that you um, had read in a, a study um someone who had studied the communication sciences. Um, talk to me about uh, about this person because the story was so great and, and a little bit about his take on sure. this. The book is called The Diffusion of Innovation. Right? And it's a huge book, three, four inches thick hardcover because it reports on probably a decade's worth of research. And the man's name was Everett Rogers. And Everett Rogers is a, a king in the field of communication science. Um, and one of his uh, popular books uh, was actually called uh, Silicon Valley Fever that he wrote in the 80s when Silicon Valley was blowing up. Um, so Everett Rogers was, was a young communication scientist in Iowa, Iowa State, and he was trying to help the local agriculture departments get uh, farmers to adopt, innovate with seeds. So he studied how farmers did or didn't choose to try new seeds. From there, he went to, on to all kinds of ways of you know, looking at how people were trying to get other people to adopt ideas. I told you a funny story about <laughs> yeah. you know, the medics in the Korea trying to teach people birth control. And you know, they turned it into worshiping the gods of birth control yes. rather than really understanding how to use the birth control. <laughs> and, you know, so he would go anywhere where people were trying to influence others. So his definition of innovation is very simple. And that is, it's an idea that's new to the adopting unit. Mm. Right? So it's an idea that's new to the adopting unit. So I think in today's world, innovation's become such a buzzword that, uh, that what I see, I see it being used in two broad ways. One is it's being used to talk about invention, mm -hmm. right? Uh, which to me, it's not invention, it's adoption. Right? And the other way is it's, it's analogous to technology. Right? When we talk about innovation, we think high tech and the movement of technology. But if you look at the root word of innovation, um, I think it's in Greek, can't remember. For sure. uh, the root of the word is innovare, and what that means is a, a new green shoot off of an old dead limb. Mm. So, you know, we had a conversation about me recently trying a new cool idea about how to change my marketing. Well, you know, it was like I was that old dead dying <laughs> limb <laughs> in how I did my marketing, and I knew it wasn't working, and I knew I didn't like it, right? but I kept doing it. Yeah. And I finally got introduced to a, a really cool way. And that was this new little green shoot, right? Well, that new little green shoot has now turned into a you know, big system within my own company and a lot of people involved in learning it and working it. 
Yeah. It's, it's almost like this little spark goes off when you see the, a new avenue, when you see that green shoot. And then from there, it's like it's the thing waking you up or the thing you're thinking about. There's so much excitement around growing and adapting. You, you mentioned that your life has been an experience in innovation. Tell me why. Well, my career has uh, obviously since since 1991, since that since I started trying to figure out how to take a big body of knowledge um, and reduce it down to you know tips and frameworks to teach software project leaders how to build a team, right? And and grabbing on to responsibility, shared responsibility as the essence that I wanted them to leave with. So since doing that. And since finding this research on the responsibility process, I adopted it and I found it both the most valuable model of normal psychology I'd ever seen. And I had a PhD (laughs) in communication by then, so lots of sociology, lots of psychology models. Um, And uh, I found it very difficult to apply. Right. So it's like, like many great models the model is simple right super simple the problem is applying it to my life my life is complex right right? and the way i've learned to cope and suffer and stay in those little boxes in all the different parts in my life well um, those are comfort zones Mm -hmm. and so to apply this model says i'm really willing to grow and and change and take ownership of my life in every little thing and stop coping. Mm. Yeah, so it's been it's been a personal adoption project my whole life, um, which has been a model of ascension, a model of consciousness uh, development, uh, personal growth. But it's also been uh, how do I build some kind of a business around this? so that I can go to work every day and play with the model that I want to play with. Um, So it's, you know, nobody else was doing it. The guys who developed it, um, they they weren't doing big corporate work. Um, Corporations were too crazy for them, too dysfunctional for these guys. And I was, I, I guess I was naive enough to, you know, still be willing to go do corporate work. Um, so I started innovating with the responsibility process on the front lines of leadership and corporation and helping people first examine how much time and attention and resource they spend um, in those very simplistic coping states. Let me give you an example. I bet everybody listening to this that's had corporate experience can relate to this example. Think of that time when you were in some conflict resolution meeting, or let's call it a problem-solving meeting, right? Some critical problem befell your company or your department, and all hands were gathered, you know, or all peer managers or whatever group was gathered, get together in a meeting room to solve the problem, and for hours, days, weeks, sometimes months, the conversation never got above lay blame and justify. (laughs) Right? Absolutely. Yeah, nobody raised their hand and said, you know, Let's do a pivot here, right? Blame me, okay? Blame me, and now who wants to work on solving the problem instead of justifying or blaming the problem, right? So then just simply do a mathematical calculation of how much of your company's money Mm -hmm. 
did you spend in all of those meetings? Because in blame and justify, in those mental states, you produce no results. No results in your life, no results at work. And the reason is that you're sure that you're a victim, you're sure you're powerless. So what you're doing is you're deflecting blame and justify. You just have to watch our government. They're great at doing this, right? It's what <laughs> politics is. It's professional deflection. In shame and obligation, we actually get busy. We actually convert anxiety to action in shame and obligation. But we produce unsatisfying results, both for ourselves and for people and, and in terms of the value of whatever we're producing, the value stream. So only in responsibility do we produce uh, what I would call exceptional results or or satisfying results. But most people I've talked to can relate to, you know, that days or weeks or months of problem-solving meetings that never got past blame and justify. Absolutely. I mean, both in, prof you know, my professional career and before starting, I mean, even starting a business now, I know, I know uh, we've got our, our audio tech in here, aka my partners. We're, we're probably going through mental ideas right now of times in which this happens now. This really is, is, is so profound is you took the responsibility model and you helped show organizations what it was costing them. That's how you sell a. That's how you sell a product. That's how you create something. Is is you not only pre present it as a solution, but there is a cost to your ineffectiveness. There's a cost to you staying in these initial that you're never thinking about because it's so innate. It's just the way we operate. It's just what we do. Absolutely. So we never even get to the point where we're able to look back critically and yeah. say, "Wow, this cost us too much." Right. So I I, I love that. We're professional sufferers. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. The hardest thing for anyone in a meeting, in my experience, has been to raise your hand and say, this was my fault and I'd like to do better at this. It's the hardest thing, I think, for people to, to do. And I think it's quite shocking when you if you do have the experience of seeing someone do it. It's, it's almost this paused point of what do we do next? <laughs> when really that's that's what we labeled this meeting saying it was going to be a problem solving meeting, but yeah. never got there. Or, or alternatively, it doesn't matter whose fault it was. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Let's let's stop finding fault and start finding solution. Yeah, if we're a team and right. we're collectively responsible for the mission, the outcome, the, then we can collectively problem solve. Then we collectively right. we collectively feel responsible. Our teammate falls and we fall. We talked a little bit of, uh, also uh, previously about how the phone seems to start ringing for both of our companies now from businesses. You know, the whole COVID silence from my business was, you know, quite profound. But I now am working on three of the most fascinating projects I've had in my whole careers because CEOs uh, coming out of COVID want to do things differently going forward. Mm. Right? <laughs> they, you know, COVID brought a, a, this awareness about do we really want to live our lives this way, at, you know, at work. And in one of those, it's a guy that I've known for 10 or 12 years, and he's a GM of about an $800 million company. In his first CEO role about 10 or 11 years ago when we met, he told a story. So this is vegetable seeds. So we were back to seeds. <laughs> he's in commercial vegetable seeds, global commercial vegetable seeds. When we first met, he was in his first CEO role. And he said they were dealing with a large problem. The company was much smaller than this one he's leading now. And it was that somebody in their operations mislabeled a batch of seeds. Mm. 
And that batch of seeds got sent to Mexico and got planted by farmers in this one region. So the seed business is all regional, right, in terms of revenue streams as well as R&D because mm. of climates, right? And uh, the plants started coming out of the ground, and they didn't look like what they were labeled as. Oh, no. <laughs> right? So it was a multi-million dollar settlement to be made with all of these farmers who lost their crop. Right? And there was a fair amount of pressure on this fellow who made the mistake. Right? And the CEO, we were, we were on an airplane, and he sat next to me and he said, I don't hold that person at fault. He said, I don't see that as a personnel problem. I see that as a cultural problem mm. in how we designed the system uh, that invited him to make that mistake. And I thought, that's one of the most profound CEOs I've ever met. I want to work with this guy. Because mm-hmm. right? most CEOs would just right, <laughs> fire the guy. Yeah, it's get him out of here. <laughs> Your fault. Yeah. Well, and that ties back to this earlier uh, statement that you made that that is so powerful. You said leadership is responsibility, and that's all it is. Th- let's go deeper on that. Sure. Tell me more about that. Absolutely. So one of our mottos at the responsibility company is lead yourself first. And the reason I say that is that um, as I've watched the leadership marketplace machinery during my career, It's labeled leadership as a main effect. It's labeled leadership as a set of behaviors. And uh, and it's for influencing people, right? So leadership is influence is, is what's being taught. And I really do not like that because it gives lots of people permission to be very destructive influencers, mm. right? Very dehumanizing influencers, right? And, and it's not that I disagree that leadership is influence. It's that it's, I think, the wrong idea is getting out there around that. So I define leadership as taking ownership of some space. Call it a problem, an opportunity, assignment, whatever. Taking ownership of some space. And then if it's bigger than you, attracting help. That's it. That's leadership. Which means leadership is a byproduct of you being inspired and in pursuit of some goal that's bigger than you. Mm-hmm. Right? So leadership is not a main effect. It's a byproduct. Right? It's, it's something that occurs because you are in motion towards a goal and you need help to achieve it. So what I've found that works really well with my clients is what I suggest is stop trying to lead anybody but yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you're the CEO of 7,500 people <laughs> or a team lead. Leadership starts with self-leadership. So um, start practicing responsibility for yourself. Start getting your compass in terms of your value systems and your principles and your beliefs. Get that stuff sorted out, right? And your ethics. Get all that stuff sorted out. And if it's not sorted out, start doing it, right? So that you define yourself. And then find something really interesting in your career path to latch on to, something that will inspire you and pull you forward. So my definition of a goal is that uh, a goal's purpose is to put me in motion. Hmm. So if I have goals and everybody has goals, but we look at our goals and we're not meeting them, we're not pursuing them, 
we were procrastinating, well, it's because they're obligation goals, mm. right? They're not pulling us forward. So I say fire those goals, right? And and rework them into a goal that actually does inspire you and pull you forward. So I said, so if you are in pursuit of something in your career space that's bigger than you, and you are leading yourself with these, with your beliefs and your values and your ethics, then I will never be surprised for you to look around and see people following you yeah. and wanting to work with you and wanting to collaborate with you and wanting to be on your team. It starts there. That is a byproduct of you first taking on the responsibility of being, of having ownership and responsibility of yourself. Mm-hmm. As I was looking more into you know the responsibility company and your framework, I saw this line and it inspired me tons. And it was you help leaders and coaches and teams that are open to the idea that their outer world changes when their inner world changes. Tell me about uh, about that process. Yeah, so read the definition of responsibility on the chart. So I'm referencing the responsi- the responsibility process handout, which we are going to link in the show notes for you. So we call the, it the poster, the responsibility process poster. It's, a, right. it's a PDF download. Very yeah. easy. And um, this is definitely going up in my home and my office. So the definition of responsibility uh, is listed as owning your ability and power to create choose and attract yeah so think about that in responsibility we are owning our our ability and power to create choose and attract a lot of people think it's an incomplete sentence create choose and attract what and the answer is everything your reality your experience right so there's two parts to the definition one is our premise is that we are always creating, choosing, and attracting all of our own experiences. Mm. We're always creating, choosing, and attracting what we're experiencing. We're just not always owning it. We're we're (laughs) often deflecting it. We're often saying that's horrible, right? I mean, you know, why am I in horrible traffic on Mopac here in Austin? Well, it's because I chose to live in Austin and I chose to drive a car and I chose to use this route, right? So why should I be angry <laughs> Yeah. when I created, chose or attracted this situation, right? So um, I think your question was to speak to, what was it? Let's get back oh, to that. Being open to the idea that oh. your outer world changes as your inner world changes. Right. So. So we spend most of our lives believing that we're victims of a jungle that we live in and that we're not in charge and that we're not choosing and creating it. And it's happening to us. So when you start practicing responsibility, you start reversing your definition of cause and effect for your world. And as you start doing that, then you start seeing everything in your world in a new way, right? And instead of thinking that you can point your finger at every problem out there and you know exactly how it ought to be fixed if only people would listen to you, right? then you start realizing that all you have to do is actually examine this little conflict in your mind between what you want and what you have and why you have anxiety about not having what you want. And so the problems don't start out there. The problems start in here. So all problems are defined inside the mind. 
Mm-hmm. Right? So we cannot solve any problem from below the line thinking. Mm. Right? Yet we approach most problems from below the line thinking. Yeah. So so starting a responsibly practice, what's interesting about it is it gives you immediate payoff that continues every day for the rest of your life. So this material has transformed my life over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in the last 30 years. And it's going to continue to do so because I keep seeing stuff that I'm not taking ownership of. Mm. You know, and I get to ask myself, well, <laughs> what, what, you know, when would be a good time? To own that you're creating this, you know, to own that you're creating this conflict in your relationship, to own that you are, you know, creating this horrible job that you keep complaining about, but you keep showing up for. Freedom, choice, and power. You mentioned those three, and that's that's what comes to me. We're creating, we're creating our entire experience and perception and the things that happen to us, and we're not aware of it. We're uh, so th- so. How do we become aware? You mentioned earlier you were having a conversation with someone you knew you could poke at and say, "Hey, you realize this is a justify." How do we, as humans, figure out when we're doing this? Good question. So our tools are three, um, three mental tools. They're three capabilities, mental capabilities that we're all born with. But society doesn't develop them in most of us. Our parents don't develop in most of us. And they don't get developed until we get into some personal growth, spiritual growth, or leadership development program. And the three capabilities, uh, you'll also find them if you study consciousness, mindfulness, you know, consciousness raising, ascension tools and techniques, you'll find these three. Uh, Most of them focus on one. We focus on all three. Your power of intention as free will. So we are intentional beings. We have motivations, inspirations, wants, needs, desires, dreams, gold stars that we're going after, paychecks. So there's two ways. So for each of these, there's a baby step and then the advanced steps. So Let me introduce the three of them and then come back. Intention, what direction am I pointing myself in? Awareness, which is the most well-known of these three. So awareness is just, what's my attention on? So is my attention on being a victim? Is my intention on the fact that I'm powerful enough that if I can create this problem for myself, I can uncreate it? Mm -hmm. And then confront. And confront doesn't mean being confrontational towards others. Confront means the ability to face and what that means is the ability to face our anxiety Mm -hmm. right so below the line what we're doing is we're feeling our anxiety a little bit and then we're running away from it right and so the confront tool in us is developing courage so you could call confront courage but confront is a more technical term for us so you develop the ability to face uh, your own anxiety about whatever problem it is, and even your anxiety about realizing you probably created it. <laughs> right. So we call it looking, looking yourself in the mirror, right? And so intention, awareness, and confront. Baby steps. Baby step for intention is to right now, today, right? If this model seems cool to you and you want to use it, then create the intention, profound intention to get yourself to the mental state of responsibility around every upset, frustration, and anxiety in your life. Now, why? Well, it's not because you want to be a good person, right? It's because that's where you get to get rid of the upset, 
and the anxiety and the frustration. That's the place where you get to solve for it and grow beyond it. So that's the baby step intention. Baby step awareness. Learn to learn more and more and more about what it's like to be you when you're in each of the mental states. So what is Sarah doing, thinking, and experiencing when she's in blame? Justify, shame, obligation, and responsibility. So, you know, what your attention is on. With these first two keys, the key of intention and the key of awareness, you can move up that chart, right? You can catch yourself in blame and realize it. And the secret I'll tell you is if you catch yourself in blame and have an intention to take responsibility, then your psyche supports you by knocking you out of blame. Mm. And you graduate upward. So your next thought will be an excuse. If you can catch yourself and justify, and you have an intention to take responsibility, then your psyche will boot you to shame. So the next thing is you start feeling bad. You go, ugh. <laughs> and it's not that I want people to feel bad, but I want you to know this process. Yeah. So then if you can realize that you're feeling guilty or ashamed of getting yourself in this situation, then if you have a powerful enough intention to get to responsibility, then your psyche will knock you up to obligation. And then you'll feel trapped. You go, oh, but I have to do it. I have to stay in this and I have to, you know, I have to pay my mortgage and, you know, all that stuff. I can't go for drinks after work because I have to do this kid thing and, you know, I have to go to my in-laws for holiday and all of that. And so the secret of getting out of obligation is to just refuse to be trapped or refuse to stay trapped, right? I refuse to stay trapped. <laughs> yeah. And when that happens, then your psyche says, I'll I'll help you, right? Let's poke on that responsibility mental state. Um, So some homework for everybody, a tool. Yes, we love tools. Here's a tool. Catch yourself using the language of have to and turn it into anything that admits volition. So the most popular one is I have to go to my boss's stupid meeting. And... Catch yourself and correct it and say, I am going to this stupid meeting because I don't want the consequences of not going and I (laughs) don't yet know how to change it. So you tell me, what's the difference between I have to go and I am doing something that I really want to stop doing? It's the fact that you're making a choice. Bingo. Absolutely. You're acknowledging to yourself that you're choosing. When we say I have to, right, your mind goes, yep, you're screwed because you're in the mental state of obligation. Yeah. Right. So when you're saying I am going, even though I don't like it, right, then your mind says, oh, you want to change it? Well, I'll start working on that for you in the background while you're at that stupid meeting. So intention and, and uh, awareness those two keys and then the confront key helps you expand your comfort zone by learning that you can go to the edge of your comfort zone over and over and over again and not die so i actually use exercises when i'm with people that have them go absolutely to the edge of their comfort zone and they experience great anxiety doing this Mm -hmm. but what they report and this is the cool lesson what they report is that that anxiety is the most intense anticipation of the experience and at the very beginning of the experience and then it dissipates within 30 seconds or a minute of being there. You mentioned this to me earlier about the 
was it the five seconds? Yes. Right? Of change. Practicing our cons- confront muscle uh, builds our ability to face intense amounts of anxiety and know it won't kill us mm-hmm. and that we will grow through it and get the lesson. So intention, awareness, and confront are the three keys to responsibility. Can I say one more thing? Absolutely. Okay. So an important thing to understand is that we can never change the responsibility process in us. right? So a lot of people think that the game is to be better than blame and better than justify and get up to responsibility and then live there for the rest of your life. No, sorry, that's not the game. Every time something goes wrong and things go wrong all day, every day, your mind goes to blame. right? So when I've forgotten to do DND on my phone and it rings in the middle of the night, you know, or my alarm goes off when I've got an early flight, right? I, I go straight to blame. Right? Yeah. And I've pra- been practicing this for 30 years, <laughs> right? So I am not immune to the responsibility process just because I've been practicing it for 30 years. It's still very alive in me. The game is how quickly can we get to the, from the bottom to the top? Yeah. That's the game. And we use intention, awareness, and confront to do this. Those are all consciousness raising things. Those are all those capabilities in the mind are all about cause and effect in your life. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I my last question is usually usually to what's one thing you want to leave our audience with? You've left us with so much. This this conversation has been so enriching enriching and inspiring. Um, and I'm I'm whirling because of it. But is there a final thought you want to leave our audience with? Is I've learned that once we start studying this, we're really good at catching ourselves in blame and justify and getting rid of it. But where the professional population of the world lives is in shame and obligation and quit, which we didn't talk about. So I call that the shame obligation quit triangle. And it's because we are so highly conditioned to be good and be approved of and be in control. Um, so it's um, so it's have patience with yourself, right? So self-compassion gets changed faster than beating yourself up, right? So most accountability experts teach us to beat ourselves up when we don't do the discipline that we say we're going to do, right? And what this teaches me is... Um, Beating ourselves up for falling short of our own expectations only puts us in shame. Right? But having self-compassion for not yet understanding or learning how to take ownership of what you've created for yourself right, actually allows you to change faster. So um, we, I spend lots of time telling smart, smart, caring people who are stuck in shame and obligation, I tell, spend lots of time telling them there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. All right. You're just, you're just living out what society has conditioned you to live out and you don't have to stay there. Yeah. yeah. So that was a, that was a long thing to leave with what, people. No, but. that was a great thing to leave. I mean, Oh, I welled up a little bit there. Whoo. That's a, that's a big one. Well, where can our audience find you and connect with you more online? I know that after this conversation that people are going to want to see more resources uh, surrounding your the responsibility process. Where can they um, connect with you? And then where can we find more resources? Sure. So 
if you want to connect with me, so let's do some market research. Let's see how many people listen to your podcast, <laughs> right? Connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, and if you're in the business of sales, uh, tell me you heard me here and you're not actually trying to prospect me for whatever it is that you're selling. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and then tell me that, that you heard from me here. So it's Christopher Avery on LinkedIn. A couple of things. So you can find everything about the responsibility company at responsibility.com. And two things when you're there. Uh, one is follow the links to the process. There's a menu item to the process and read about the responsibility process. And then there's a place where it'll offer for you to download the poster. So download the poster. There's, um, uh, it's a two-sided PDF and there's teaching points on the back. So the summary of everything I just talked about is on the back of the poster. Uh, and I invite you to print out copies of that and hang it all over. So I heard from a teacher in Plano that told me she just posted 150 copies of it around the high school campus. And then the other thing is join our responsibility community, which you'll find lots of invitations around the website to join the responsibility community. And it's a all content, no selling uh, email distribution. Love that. Well, Christopher, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I know that it's going to impact so many people. It's been so impactful. Um, so thank you for being here and thank you for sharing with our B2B Growth Hacks audience. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Ray, for having me. It's been a pleasure. And you're a wonderful interviewer. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. We'll see you next time on B2B Growth Hacks. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to know how to get involved and share your story, head over to our website at b2bgrowthhacks.com. Also, while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest conversations happening here on B2B Growth Hacks. This podcast is sponsored by Speakerbox Media where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com.